data. Our first speaker of the afternoon is Dr. Carlos Del Rio. You met him earlier on the panel. He is in the School of Public Health at uh, Rollins School of Public Health in Emory in Atlanta. He uh, runs their global health program. He's also director of their CIFAR there and has done a lot of work in um, issues related to the epidemic in the southeastern United States, but because of his global health involvement, he also works in Africa a lot. And in fact, last night at about 6 p.m., he returned from a trip in Kenya, and so he's back uh, to here to speak with us. So he's going to draw parallels between the epidemics in the United States and, and Africa and what lessons we can learn in terms of engagement to care. Thank you, Mike, uh, and thanks everybody for listening. This is this talk is typically a postprandial talk, and uh, and as such, uh, my hope is that this is not for you to take notes on data. This is more of a philosophical, interesting discussion. So, kind of a enjoy it. You know, you fall asleep. I won't take it personal. Uh, okay. So, which control is the right control? There we go. So those are my disclosures. So as uh, these are the learning objectives to talk about what the 9090 goals and to talk about some interventions developed in Africa that are applicable in the United States and to describe the value of investments in global health. <coughs> so this is, as Mike said, uh, part of my uh, clinical trials unit, uh, HIV clinical trials unit. We have a unit in, in Kenya, in, uh, in Kisumu, and Kisumu is in, the, in, in western Kenya, right at the border of, uh, of Lake uh, Victoria in the Nyanza province. And you can see that this is an area, I mean, when you think about HIV, a lot of the, this is an area of very high incidence and kind of prevalence of HIV. This is like at the center of the epidemic in Africa. So I was there uh, last week, and, uh, and I am here today. So <laughs> I'm going to be describing how you go from there to there. <laughs> so these are the, uh, the 1999 goals. The, the, you, this is an initiative that was launched by UNAIDS uh, during the 20th International Conference of AIDS that took, care, that took place in, in Melbourne. And the whole idea here is how do we get to focus on improving the care continuum? How do we emphasize viral suppression as a major goal? And you've got to think that when, when the role of antiretroviral therapy started, it was all about how many people can we get on therapy, how many people can we get on therapy. And this was really a transition into how many people can we keep on therapy and keep them biologically suppressed? And this really has become the central pillar of really this, this idea that we can end AIDS. And the reality is that this has happened because of the science, uh, HPTN 052, and a variety of other studies that have really shown that undetectable means untransmissible, and therefore a way to stop the spread of the epi epidemic is to, to decrease the number of people who are virally unsuppressed, because if you can get people virologically suppressed, then the risk of transmission is essentially not there. So if you were to reach the 90, 90, 90 goals, what percentage of the population globally will need to be virally suppressed? Is it 50%, 65%, 73%, 85%, or 90%?
Okay. So 38% uh, of you got it right, 73%, and we're going to go into the data. So what is 90-90? So 90-90-90 means that you have 90% of, of people living with HIV diagnosed, 90% of those diagnosed on treatment, and 90% of those on treatment virally suppressed. And when you do the math, you, you come to 73% if 90-90-90, 73% of people living with HIV are then virally suppressed. And the mathematical modeling suggests that by that point in time in communities and in other populations, you will start seeing a drop in new infections, significant drop in almost a stop in new infections. And as a result of this, really, we have always thought about antiretrovirals as something that improves the quality of life, but now it really is at the center of decreasing transmission. And WHO has really made antiretroviral therapy the cornerstone of both uh, treatment and prevention as a result of this. And, you know, the, for the first time, the WHO guidelines talk about treatment and prevention and really focus on antiretroviral therapy because of this. So where are we? Remember, this goal is for 2020, so we're two years away. And where are we in the 90-90-90 goals? Well, this is here we are globally. Globally, 70% of people living with HIV have been diagnosed. Of those diagnosed, 77% are on treatment. And of those on treatment, 82% are virally suppressed. And what this is great. I mean, these are incredibly good numbers, but this means that only 44% of those living with HIV globally are virally suppressed. So as you can see, we have a lot of work to be done to get to 73%. Now, where are we in the United States? Uh, what is the biggest challenge in the HIV care continuum here in the US? Is it HIV testing? Is it linkage to care? Is it ART initiation? Retention and care? or viral suppression? I feel like having a margarita or a martini as I'm hearing this music. I feel like I'm in a bar somewhere. Okay, so yes, so in our country, our biggest challenge is retention and care, because this is what our, our 90-90-90 goals and our care continuum looks like in the United States. We have about 85% of people uh, diagnosed, according to CDC, so we're very close to getting to the first 90, but we don't do well at all getting to the second 90. And of those diagnosed, only 57% are in, in, uh, in care and of those, and in treatment, and of those on care and in treatment, 80% of them are virally suppressed. So yes, the key for us is really here, right? Globally, the biggest challenge is in the first 90, is we were only at 70% of people diagnosed. We have a lot of people undiagnosed out there. Here in the US, our biggest challenge is engagement, is retention and care, and that's where we need to put our efforts. <clears throat> Now this is, you know, it sounds good, looks good globally, but if you look here are two examples of sort of a, you know, specific populations. And when you talk about key populations, the first one is, is men who, uh, who have sex with men in Russia, and the second one is injection drug users, people who inject drug in India. And you can see that there you have bigger challenges, right? So when you get down to subpopulations, which are at the center of the epidemic, you really run into significant problems thinking about 90-90-90, and you may be doing well population-wide, but in specific subpopulations, you may not do, be doing as well. So which countries in Africa has reached 90-90-90? Has some, somebody gotten there? Is it South Africa, Malawi, Botswana, 
Ethiopia, or Kenya. Okay, good, good job. So almost 50% of you got it right. And indeed, the countries that have reached 90-90-90 in their uh, public estimates are Botswana, Cambodia, Denmark, Iceland, Singapore, Sweden, and the UK. Now, I was looking at the data, it's interesting, because in the UK and in some of these other countries, in Sweden, for example, but the UK data is really interesting. They've shown that they have reached 90-90-90, but really they have not seen, they were not seeing a decrease in, in, in new infections that they expected to see. They didn't see a stop of the epidemic, a major, ma major drop in the number of new infections. And probably because concentrated epidemics, like what we have in this country, primarily affecting men who have sex with men, is gonna take a little bit more. And what they've shown very nicely in the UK is that when they scaled up PrEP, then they really started to see that decrease. So it makes the point that this is not in many places, especially this 90-90-90 may work very well for generalized epidemics like in Africa, but when concentrated epidemics like what we have in our country, we also need to scale up PrEP if we're really gonna see the benefits of getting to 90-90-90. And I emphasize that because this is not just about treatment, we really have PrEP, which has been grossly underutilized as it was shown by Dr. Buckbinders in her talk. So how do we get to the first 90? Well, we definitely have to scale up testing globally. We have to improve knowledge of serostatus, and there's a lot of room to improvement. Uh, last night I was reviewing, a, uh, looking at a new paper uh, showing very nicely that in a meta-analysis published in Lancet HIV, uh, people who do, do self-testing uh, have exactly the same linkage to care that people who go to clinics and get tested and get counseled, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to change our model. We need to scale up self-testing. We need to do different things. Doing the same thing we have been doing is not gonna get us there. So, and this is particularly true for young people and especially for young men. So we have to prioritize HIV testing. There's still many places. I was, again, just in Kenya, and I was told how there's a lot of missed opportunities when people come in, where they're doing very good job countrywide diagnosing people with, they, testing for HIV people with diagnosed TB. But when somebody comes in with symptoms suggestive of TB, you know, cough, fever, weight loss, they don't do HIV testing until they can confirm the diagnosis of TB because, you know, we were told them you need to test everybody with TB. But if you clinically have TB, you ought to just go ahead and test people. So we need to do a better job of, of you know, prioritizing testing, new technologies, and, and innovative service delivery. Again, you know, home testing will probably be a, a strategy to be, to be used. Uh, in the US, 15% of people with HIV aren't aware of their infection. But this ranges from 5.7% to 18.5% across many states. And and in the, in, the south, in the southern United States, over 50% of people living with HIV are undiagnosed. And therefore, we have a higher number of people who aren't aware of their infection and therefore a higher transmission. So a lot of this, even though nationally we look at we've done great in HIV testing, if you go to regions, you're not doing as well. And in fact, in the south, we're doing worse than the global epidemic. <clears throat> there in, in the US, the median delay from infection to diagnosis is now three years. And if you look at who's been tested in the prior 12 months in, in different data, you know, it goes from 71% for MSMs to only 58% of people who inject drugs and 41% for heterosexuals at risk. Again, we need to do a better job, I think, also. We, we shouldn't just say we've done great in the U.S. We're 85% because there's a lot more that needs to be done, especially in some populations. 
So what, what are the lessons from Africa that we can incorporate? Well, you know, I, I'm not going to talk a lot about rapid testing, but I'm just going to mention that rapid testing was an, an, a strategy, was a technology that was developed for lower-income countries. It was a technology developed for Africa when I first moved from, from Mexico to the U.S. in 1996, and I proposed a grant, and, you know, we were going to do a study with rapid testing. Oh, my, it was all of a sudden I realized that, oh, rapid testing was not available here, hadn't been approved by the FDA. Because the FDA, you know, the companies never thought that this would make any sense here. We got better things. We can do it in labs, instruments. So again, a technology that was developed in Africa, we, for, for the Africa and developing countries, we later incorporated here. But I'm going to talk about one intervention, couples, volunteer, counseling, and testing. This, uh, you know, this is a, a, a strategy that was developed by my colleague, uh, Susan Allen, and, and working in Zambia and in Rwanda. And the cold principle is about two-thirds of incident HIV infections in sub-Saharan Africa occur among stable serotoscorin couples. It's not that one-nighter, it's not that one event, it's actually that stable partnership. And it makes sense, with a stable partner, you're less likely to use condoms, but also you have more frequent intercourse, so you're more likely to get infected. And what she did is she showed that, you know, there was a lot of skepticism. You bring two people into the room, you're going to test them together, you're going to give them the results together, there's going to be, you know, domestic violence, what's going to happen? Well, it turns out none of that happened. It actually worked very well. And she was able to show that the, inter show that the intervention itself uh, decreased transmission. So years later, two, again, two colleagues of mine, uh, Rob Stevenson and Patrick Su Sullivan, said, well, if this works in Africa among serodiscordant couples, why don't we try it in the U.S. for serodiscordant uh, gay and bisexual men to see if this indeed will decrease transmission. So they did a study, and the first thing is they, they said, well, what percentage of transmission in the U.S. occurs among uh, uh, serodiscordant men who have sex with men? And here's five cities in the U.S. And again, you know, you don't need to go into specifics. You go by, by age there. But you can see that a lot of transmissions are occurring this way. So the first study they did is they just look at the safety and acceptability. Again, there was a lot, it was a, a deja vu, a lot of questions when they started doing that. When they submitted their grant, there was, you know, comments from the reviewers, oh my God, you're going to create a lot of, of dialings, there's going to be, you know, uh, 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 domestic violence among your, your, the partners, this is not going to work. So the first thing they did is they just looked at, is it acceptable, does it work, and how does it compare with traditional uh, HIV testing? And basically you can see that down there is intimate partner violence, relationship dissolution, or outside sex partners, and you can see cu couples counseling versus voluntary counseling, individualized counseling, and there was absolutely no difference. So they were able to show that this was an acceptable intervention, and this is something that can be done. And as a result of that, they did multiple other studies, but as a result of that, this is now one of the interventions that the CDC, uh, uh, you know, has categorized as a DEBI, as an de evidence-based intervention, and it's actually health departments and others are supported, and you can apply for funding to be able to do this kind of, 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 of testing. It hasn't been scaled up as much as it should. I mean, I think we need to do more of this because we're really getting people to come with their partners to be tested. I think it's a very effective way, not only to, to test them together, but also to intervene, to talk about who needs to be on, on on, on, on PrEP, who needs to be on therapy, et cetera, et cetera. So let's talk about the second 90. Uh, the, the, the adoption of a treat-all approach and the same-day initiation is critical in the success of, of the second 90. It's very clear that we got to get people linked to care quickly and we got to retain them in care. And this will require expansion of, 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 of proven models of linkage people to care and I think redesigning of clinical operations to improve efficiency, empower clients, and expedite treatment uptake. So the, there are two strategies that have been useful. One is community health workers, and the other one is called differentiated care. 
And there's a lot of lessons to be learned, and the lessons are from the search study and from the rapid study, so we're going to talk about those too. So let's start with search. Uh, okay, I don't know why the question came here, but let's talk. So we talked about this during the panel. We can talk about it again. So should we start ART immediately? And again, we'll define what immediate is. But the question is yes, no, or don't know. Okay, good. Most people are convinced. Okay, so this is a search study. Search study is a study that has been done in sustainable East Africa research and community health. It's a study being done in communities in Kenya and, and, and Uganda. And it's basically a strategy of a test and treat strategy with, with compared to country-specific standards in 32 matched rural communities. And in the intervention communities, there is, it's a very complex process. It's, it's annual uh, multi-disease community uh, health campaign. And again, this is sort of taking, sort of not making HIV just about HIV. This is really going, the, the investigators go to the communities and they really do health promotion. The, you get it tested for HIV, for diabetes, for hypertension. Uh, you, there's home-based testing. You know, some, it's, it's just, it's not just HIV testing, it's really about a, a multi-component disease, sort of well, a wellness intervention. And those that are tested HIV positive in the intervention communities, there's facilitated linkage to care, immediate appointment, there's personal staff introduction, clinic phone numbers, you know, one-time transportation vouchers, tracking in individuals who do not link, and stream ART and flexible hours, reminders, et cetera. So they're really trying to get people into, into treatment quickly. And this is basically uh, what their data looks like. So in blue there, you can see the baseline of the communities, and at baseline, you know, about 70% of people uh, who were HIV infected knew their diagnosis, and about 80% had received had ever been in antiretroviral therapy, and about 86% of those who were on therapy were suppressed. Uh, after the follow-up of one year, you can see it in red, and after the follow-up of two years, you can see that after two years, 97% of those in the intervention communities who were HIV infected knew their status, and 94% were in antiretroviral therapy, and 90% were virologically suppressed. So basically, they were able to reach the 90-90-90 with this intervention. And as I tell people, you know, if they could do it there, they can do it, we can do it everywhere. You know, this is something that, there's a lot of lessons to be learned about what this, how this was done and how it's being uh, sustained. <coughs> so as far as rapid test, about a rapid initiation of therapy, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the study by Sidney Rosen in South Africa was really the first one to show that you know, getting people initiating antiretroviral therapy at a first clinic appointment immediately after diagnosis really made significant difference. And what it did, it got people virologically suppressed faster, but it also kept people, uh, you know, they're starting ARV in the, in the initial visit there, increased ART uptake by 36% and viral suppression by 26%. So they were able to get more people to accept starting on therapy, not because more people accept it, but you know, if you tell somebody come back in a month so we can start you on therapy and they have to you know, travel three hours or walk four hours to get it to and from clinic, they may not come back and those people therefore were not start on therapy. But clearly this made a difference. So um, uh, my colleague, uh, Jonathan Colasanti and others in, in our clinic in Atlanta decided to follow a similar approach. Again, they looked at the national HIV strategy and they said, you know, linkage to care within one month makes no sense, and they look at our clinic, and it was taking us between diagnosis to getting people into, 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 uh, 
ART was taking, you know, four to eight weeks between one thing and the other, and they said, we gotta change that. We gotta make sure that we can get people uh, an appointment within 72 hours of diagnosis, and we need to start them on therapy. So again, this is looking at what the program is called REACH, and you can see before REACH and after REACH, the comparison, before REACH there's 117 patients that were referred, were referred to our clinic. After REACH was started, there's 80 there. And you can see that the days, uh, the days that it took from first to first uh, scheduled provider visit was 15 days pre-REACH to four days. The, the days of first day attendance visit from, went from 71 to, to five days. And the days to start antiretroviral therapy went from 21 days. So three weeks was almost taking us before the, from the time they reached the clinic, not from diagnosis, to seven days once we started this program. And, and what it showed at the bottom is basically you can see that at the time to virologic suppression went down from 67 days to 41 days. So yes, we got a lot of people faster into therapy, but we also got people virally suppressed much sooner. And I guess, as you heard before, this has implications for transmission. So obviously this can be done, and the question is what is rapid? Is rapid immediate, like, it, like they do in, in Lesotho, for example, recently, or they did in South Africa, in which you get tested and you get started on therapy right away? Yeah, you could potentially do that, where in fact, uh, just submitted recently a study uh, to try to get funded to start people in the emergency room and see if we can do that. But, but we think that if you could get people start on therapy within a week to, to two weeks, it's, it's perfectly appropriate. So 10 days being a reasonable time. And you can see here that we were able to start ART within seven days of, of getting to the clinic. Now you have, we have, we don't test in our clinic. We get referrals from other testing sites. We need to close the gap between diagnosis to, to getting to the clinic. That's still the, the link for us. So strong, establishing stronger links to testing sites so when somebody's diagnosed, we can rapidly get them into the clinic, uh, I think is, is, is sort of a key strategy in achieving these goals. But yes, this is doable, this is possible, and patients and providers do very well. Interestingly, the patients were much more open to this when we started the program about a year and a half ago than the providers. A lot of providers were very skeptical. You know, We've gone, all of us have grown with, oh, you have to counsel people and you have to tell people that it's gonna, you know, there are risks and benefits, blah, blah, blah. No, we've taken all that away in patients. So educating the providers was actually very important to making this happen. There everybody was used to waiting for the viral load and a bunch of lab tests before they started some therapy. So again, provider education, a very important component of doing this. <clears throat> How about achieving the third 90s? Well, you know, clearly our strategies here, we can use peer support groups, SMS reminders, differentiated care. Uh, and as far as maintaining viral suppression, financial incentives have been important. And what is differentiated care? It's basically trying to decide how do you space out your visits, who do you decide to see, who needs to be seen more frequently, who doesn't. So not, not make the rules that everybody has to see every time, all the time, the same way. And for example, WHO now recommends that for stable patients, they be seen every three to six mo uh, months at, at clinic visits. And, and every three, six uh, for, for drug refills. And what do we do here in our country? Can we see somebody you know, at six months, at 12 months? What is the ideal time? There may be other patients we've got to see monthly. So really, we need to think about differentiated care as a way to look at, at how do we create more spaces in our clinic. And one of the things that we have uh, talked about in our clinic is very similar to what David mentioned, the, the red carpet program have sort of a red carpet program for what we call our elite members, right? The people that have been in the clinic for a long time that do well, how do we make sure that they actually have a rapid access so we see them every six months or every 12 months, but if they have a problem, they can be rapidly seen. They don't feel like they're out of care. They, they have a special line they can call and get right in, a little bit like airlines do with elite passengers, et cetera. Uh, 
And you know, I'll remind you about uh, this, you know, HPTN 065. This was a very important study in which uh, many of you here in DC participated. And the whole idea here was to see if financial incentives improve linkage to care and virologic suppression. And you can see there was a, uh, th there was a, uh, the positive uh, result in, uh, in, uh, uh, in virologic suppression, uh, but really it was, it was really in, in a very small group of individuals. So does it make a difference, financial incentives? You know, I think that the jury's still out. I think that there may be other interventions that are just as useful. Uh, and this is, you know, looking at the data from how effective this was in, in the HPTN study. And yes, there was, an, uh, there was an effect on viral suppression, but it really was with very specific groups and very specific clinics that this made a difference. So not something that you can recommend as an intervention across the board for everybody. I'll also mention another intervention that is happening in Africa that I think we can scale up in our country very well. We don't frequently think about injection drug use as being part of the epidemic in Africa, but I just show you that the prevalence of, of persons who inject drugs in Kenya is about 18%, and there are about 1,000 persons living, uh, the persons who inject drugs in Nyanza province near Kisumu where we work. And you can see that about a year ago, the CDC and the Minister of Health opened a, a uh, medication-assisted uh, therapy clinic there, and now uh, this is one of the six clinics in Kenya that have been approved for medication-assisted therapy and they're doing methadone substitution, uh, and that has improved a lot the entry to care, the virologic suppression, the ART initiation of virologic suppression for persons who inject drugs and who are HIV infected in these in this provinces. So what can we do to incorporate, how, how do we bring medication-assisted therapy into our HIV clinics in a more effective way in this country? You know, Africa is doing it, places are doing it, and we ought to be able to do it just as well here. <clears throat> So I'll end by just saying that clearly what got us here won't get us there. I think reaching the global targets is gonna, is gonna require new approaches, and there's a lot of interest in really thinking outside the box. What do we need to do differently to reach the last, you know, to reach 90, 90, 90, to improve the care cascade in our country? And I think just running the same thing we've been running all along is not gonna do it because, you know, our retention rates and other things are simply not, not doing well. And I worry a lot, for example, when people say, well, you know, we found people who are falling out of care, we bring them back to clinic and re-engagement. There's really zero data on re-engagement out there. And I'm very skeptical that's actually making a difference because if you already fail in a clinic to bring you back to the clinic that already failed you, I'm not sure it's gonna make a difference in that individual. So what do we need to do to restructure our clinics to make it more community-based, more patient-friendly, are important strategies that we need to address. <coughs> NIH is very interested in this, and I, I put this out there because uh, recently there was a request for proposals from NIH that the title is imp uh, in, imp Implementing the Most Successful Interventions to Improve HIV Outcomes in U.S. Communities. And this is basically taking interventions from Africa that have worked there and putting them in the United States. So the NIH is interested in funding how do we look at what has been done through PEPFAR in innovative strategies and bring them to the United States. So in conclusion, if we are to achieve the goals of the National AIDS Strategy, innovative approaches will be needed, as doing the same thing we've been doing is not going to get us there. I think PEPFAR strategies that have been developed around PEPFAR to deliver quality care and treatment vary by country, but they really focus on strengthening healthcare infrastructure and service delivery to provide quality care. And the interventions have been primarily clinic-based with community outreach service for patients, and who are lost to follow-up and for testing initiatives. And lessons to be learned from in, uh, interventions to implement HIV care in Sub-Saharan Africa can improve the care in the United States. So when I think about global health, a lot of people think, you know, global health is about me going there, teaching what to do. 
I think what we learn in HIV is about the things we're learning there and then bring them back to our country to teach us how to better take care of our patients here in the U.S. So thank you very much and happy to answer any questions. said to take your calls outside, so that's what I did. Okay, great. Um, yeah. So, um, regarding rapid test and treat, what are your initial treatments? Um, do you want to know about the B5701 kidney function genotype? So, obviously, you have to start without that knowledge. Well, I think what we do is we draw the, the lab work, but we don't wait for the results. You obviously want to have a pretreatment uh, uh, viral load. You want to have a pretreatment gen genotype. You you want to draw a pretreatment HLA B57, but precisely because you don't have the results, a back of your face regimens are regimens you wouldn't consider for rapid initiation of therapy, right? Your uh, creatinine, yeah, you can probably wait for the creatinine. I mean, most places you can get a CBC and a and a Chem7 pretty quickly and yeah. get a creatinine, so you can have that. And I think you know if you see something in a CBC and Chem7 that looks really abnormal, you may not want to start therapy. If somebody, you know, is newly diagnosed, but they happen to have a hemoglobin of seven, you know, let's invest, let's, let's not rush to start therapy. We need to find out what's going on with that individual. So again, you need to select who are you starting into rapid, uh, rapid uh, ERT programs. And it's not something for everybody, it's something for the individual who's newly diagnosed and nothing else is going on with them. Okay, this, yeah. I have a question. Yeah, oh, sorry, yes. Thanks. Um, thank you, Carlos. Um, uh, my question is, do you have any general comments about the pediatric and adolescent HIV population in reaching the 90-90-90? Yeah, you know, adolescents, uh, as you know, is our, our, our hard-to-engage population. It's a population that is, it's, it's challenging in every other disease, whether you're talking about diabetes, sickle cell, any chronic condition, and in HIV is no different. I think that a lot of programs are being developed, especially uh, internationally around adolescents and how to keep them engaged and how to do that transition. I think the results are, are mixed. I don't think we're doing as well as we should. And I think that that's really one of the big challenges in the epidemic because as you also know, with the what, what's called the adolescent bulge, the number of new adolescents that are growing up to be sexually active at this point in time, we may be, all the gains may be lost very quickly. So no, I think that's still a big question. How do you propose uh, dealing with stigma, perhaps on the part of the other healthcare providers, uh, maybe in the ER? Uh, is that going to is that a barrier? Do you think uh, where they don't want to deal with HIV patients? You know, stigma has been, as I've said for many years, the Achilles heel of, of this epidemic. Whether it's, it's it's healthcare workers or or society or individualized, uh, you know, internalized stigma is something we have to deal with. I think the most important thing that we, ha we can do when somebody's newly diagnosed with HIV is show them that we care for them. And, and, and getting in that, in, in our program, what we've done is we have a 1-800 number that the ER, whoever's diagnosing the individual, the clinic can call, and we rapidly send somebody out there who basically can, can tell the individual, we're here for you, we care for you. And that does wonders trying to, to get rid of stigma. So that does wonders to show somebody who's scared, who's newly diagnosed, who's very worried, who, who has some, you know, feel some stigma, feel that, that at least there's a, there's a place of acceptance that they can be 
taken care of. And I think that initial encounter is very important. That's why we have a group of social workers and community workers that can go out there and rapidly do that. Yep. Second question is um, telemedicine. So could you imagine a situation where you're dealing with more rural areas, either Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, mm -hmm. where you've got telemedicine, you could do testing at the remote site, it comes back positive, and then you initiate therapy by television video screen? I, I think so, and in fact, it, I haven't seen it for, for HIV uh, treatment and, and initiation, but my colleague, Patrick Sullivan, and, and a group that he's working with have developed a prep kit. So you mail this right. kit very much like the 23andMe kit, and then you do your own testing, you submit, it, you, you submit your results, and then you get you know, FaceTime, you're giving the results, and then they, they mail you back your drugs, and that's how PrEP is working in rural areas. So you can do this totally remotely with a kit that you put in the mail. Right. But, you know, as I think about that, part of it, like you said, that you care and, and that empathy, um, that's a little bit harder to convey by video screen, but hopefully there'll be other healthcare professionals who can support the patient as you give them a diagnosis, I would guess. Um, how do you envision specialty uh, clinics interacting with primary care practices to augment the ability to contribute towards the 90-90-90? You know, I, I think we have to, those of us in specialty clinics, we have to be available again through telemedicine, you know, e-consultation, et cetera, to help providers that are doing this. But, but once people get comfortable, they do it very well. I mean, I've been working with one uh, clinic and there's a model out there, you know, the has been used for hepatitis C, the ECHO model that has worked very well. So I think there's a good model there to reproduce to take HIV treatment and PrEP to, to rural communities. Yep. What about uh, providing medications for somebody who's uninsured? Uh, you're sitting and you want to get them started, but... Uh, so a big challenge, right? The bureaucratic challenge of somebody who's uninsured, who pays for it, how do we do it? We were able in Atlanta to get our Ryan White and our ADAP to agree to give us a 30-day supply well, we got the paperwork and all the things completed. And then we said, well, if we cannot get that done, uh, then we'll, we, we are, we are, the clinic is at fault. We will have to pay you for those 30 days worth of medication. And, and it worked. I mean, basically, but it required that, that handshake agreement that you're gonna give us those 30 days and we will get your paperwork to you in time. Right, but as you, as you showed and as you described, it, it took a lot of effort, right? Most of the barriers are bureaucratic. They're not, mm -hmm. you know, it's talking to the Ryan White people to say, look, allow us to do this. It's talking to this other people. It's, it was just breaking down all those different barriers. And if I'd shown you, once my colleague publishes this paper, who is just, you know, copiously accepted in, in open forum infectious disease, you'll see he has a very nice graph of all the challenges, how the bureaucratic challenges were, were basically blown up so that he can actually do this. It wasn't just about implementing a program. It was really restructuring the clinic. Right, but still, it's you're discontinuing the program because of the effort that it takes to continue it. Is that right? Well, no, we're discontinuing it because we simply were overwhelmed in the uh, capacity of doing this. So the question is, how do we now open more slots and be able to have more providers so we can actually do it? Because the program can continue. It's just simply we were oh, totally overwhelmed by it. Right. And I think to me, what, what I take away from all this is, again, we said this five times, that it's not a one-size-fits-all. No. If it works for you, great. But I think the spirit is if you're getting somebody in to be seen in the next day or two, not waiting a month, uh, I think is the message. I think it's all about showing people that we care. I think it makes a big difference to show somebody that you care for them, that you give them a result of a diagnosis and you can say, this is, the this is what we're gonna do for you and we're gonna do it quickly. 
This is an interesting question. So what, how do you deal with liability issues? So things that might work okay in Africa because it's not as litigious. Uh, if you make a mistake in this ER setting, uh, are you worried about uh, uh, implications for you uh, uh, implementing these types of things in ERs in the U.S. setting? You know, we haven't, we haven't worried much about it. We also have tried to avoid discussing it with our lawyers because <laughs> we worry that they're the ones that are going to find many reasons why you couldn't do this. Uh -huh. but, but I do think that I think we're doing the right thing. And I think I'm more worried about doing the right thing than, than, than worrying about getting sued. I worry, I worry more, as I told one time in our hospital, I worry more about the person who gets diagnosed and then sent to the street, and then that person does not follow up, and then they get readmitted with pneumocystis. I think that's, that's a bigger liability in my mind. Right. This one, I'm not sure I get the full gist of it. I'll just read it. Um, how are data collected for patients who do not know they're HIV positive when they can't report it? I mean, I guess maybe the, ins maybe the spirit of that is um, how do you deal with uh, reporting to the, the government or reporting to the system? Well, you know, a lot of the HIV reporting in this country nowadays is done by, by, by laboratories. And it's laboratories that are doing the reporting. As a result of that, a lot of the data is incomplete. Because if you look at the CDC data, like 40% of people has risk factor unknown because the lab reported the results and there's not a clinical form attached to it. So uh, that's how most of the reporting is now happening, is, is laboratory-based reporting, both for HIV and for CD4 counts. Yeah. Joe? Yeah, um, I wondered about the, um, uh, the rapid start and whether you, do you guys a single positive uh, rapid test? Is that is that all you need? Is no. that how, what do you? So so no, we're not doing it in our program. We're not doing it based on a, on a rapid test precisely because of the false uh, positives that you could potentially have. So people are in our ER get tested with 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 an architect. I see. And and they're tested with the architect, and if the result is positive on the architect, they do you know then they do a genius for confirmatory. So at that point in time then is when we start. I'm not basing this on a single rapid test. If we were going to do rapid test approach, I would do the CDC Africa algorithm of having two different rapid tests right. as initial. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is about improving in community involvement to improve the retention. So um, the, serial, uh, the social, uh, cultural, behavioral barriers to adherence and retention in the United States, how can we take models from Africa and uh, apply that or uh, scale it up to help the retention overcoming these barriers? Are there suggestions? Well, clearly, I mean, it's, it's thinking more of a community health worker approach. I think, I, you know, I, I love the, the, the global health approach, the community health worker. The challenge is that if you read everything in global health, it's like the poor community health worker is this person that everybody puts things on and everybody thinks that the community health worker is going to do everything that the health system is unable to do. And then we, we actually have them as volunteers. We don't pay them, right? Uh, and I think, I, I say that if we're going to have a community health worker approach, we've got to pay people to do this. This is a paid job and they need to be part of the healthcare system. So maybe we need to change the name and not call them community health workers, but just call them outreach health workers or whatever you want to call them. But yeah, going more to where the patient is, to the individual is, to their you know, household or to their environment rather than expecting somebody to come to clinic. And think about, just think about the number of hours that if somebody has a clinic, it has, has to be seen in clinic, the number of hours that they are wasting because of their transportation, waiting in our clinic, for that 10 or 15, 20 minute visit, they probably wasted half a day or a, a full day. So how can we do to make that easier and maybe go out to the individual to make sure everything is okay? Yeah. 
This last question was about Botswana. The, what are they doing different than, say, other African countries that aren't hitting 90-90-90? Well, first of all, you know Botswana, it's a pretty wealthy African country. You're talking about, I mean, there's a, you know, Botswana, Malawi. I mean, you're talking about very different countries from their economics and what they're able to do. Botswana is really a, a middle-income, a lower-middle-income country. They have incredible uh, government commitment, a lot of investment. So I think it, it, one of the lessons that you learn is that political commitment makes a big difference. In countries that have reached that, political commitment has been very, very important. So don't underestimate the power of political commitment. I think this city is a good example of that. When there was no organization and no political commitment, it was a mess. And when the things were aligned and there was com the political commitment from mayor down, all of a sudden things are working. So I think don't underestimate the power of political commitment in, 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 in reaching the goals of 1999. And it has to be sustained. Yeah. You can't just start and stop. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, Carlos. Great job.